I hope you rested well, and I hope you got a good breakfast so that now you're all fed up and ready to go. I believe that perhaps the most important issue facing the church today and therefore facing the world, in my estimation, is the issue of the character of Christ, the character of God. We can be right about a a lot of things, but if we misrepresent God's character, then we miss everything. We can be right about the day of worship, but if we miss the one in whom we rest that day, we're the kings of trivial pursuit and no one cares, nor should they. You realize there will be decaffeinated vegan Sabbatarians in hell, don't you? I mean, it just is going to happen. We can get a lot of things right, but if we miss Jesus, if we miss the loving character of our God, we miss everything. In fact, we can be wrong about some things and still get Jesus right and make it to heaven. He'll straighten us out there. But there's no straightening out if you're not there. And you get there through him. I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist. And I got to tell you that growing up a Seventh-day Adventist, I, uh, I valued being right more than I valued being loving. I've learned that being right is overrated. Now, that's not to say that I endorse being wrong. I think it's good to be right, but it's better to be loving. And if you can add light, right to loving, then you're okay. And the truth is, let's, let's also admit something else. We talk a lot about having the truth. Jesus told us what truth was. It's not 28 fundamental beliefs. The truth is a person. He said, I am the truth. And everything else are little points of light that point to the one who himself is truth. Jesus and Jesus alone is our truth. All truth abides in him. He is the embodiment of truth. All of our doctrine has one purpose, and that is to reveal to us the one who himself is truth. And if it doesn't do that, either we don't understand it or we don't need it. (laughs) It all points to him. Every sermon Every doctrine, every worship service, every teaching, every evangelistic event, it's about Jesus Christ. But no one cares about Jesus if we misrepresent him. If we misrepresent, and by the way, you misrepresent him, you misrepresent the Father. You misrepresent the Father, you misrepresent the Holy Spirit, because they're all the same in thought and in action and in principle and character. Misrepresent one, you've misrepresented them all. It's interesting to me that that the Jews struggled with this as mightily as we have, quite frankly, throughout the years. The entire temple service was about forgiveness. With with the lambs and and, uh, all of it was centered around the forgiveness of sinners. And the future Christ who himself would would pay the ultimate sacrifice for the forgiveness of sinners. And yet, somehow they missed that and they made it about rules and regulations. That sound familiar to you? (laughs) 
yeah, I grew up in the 1950s in this church. Believe me, I know the rules and regulations. I know exactly how, how far you can wade on the Sabbath if you're conservative or liberal. I know those things. <laughs> I grew up in Texas, man. I, know, I understand that stuff. <laughs> I understand you can run a bit on the Sabbath, but if you introduce a ball to the activity, you have just crossed the line, brother. We, somehow, we missed what it was about. We missed who it was about. In Jesus' day, there were those who taught that God loved the righteous. He absolutely loved the righteous, but he hated sinners. And they named the righteous as those who kept the law as they did. They were the righteous. Jesus taught something a little bit different. He said God loves sinners. And then he went on to categorize two, two uh, classes of sinners, those who did not keep the law and those who did. <laughs> all were sinners, but all were loved by God. Now, there were those who heard this message who, whose hearts were warmed by it. They were thrilled by this message. But those who kept the law, who thought themselves to be righteous and others to be sinners, they were not particularly interested in being categorized in the same category as those who broke the law. And they thought that this was a spurious teaching that needed to be corrected, and so they were very anxious to correct Jesus. But those who saw themselves as sinners, who had been told by others that they were sinners, and they heard this message from Jesus, oh man, it was life-changing. In particular, there was a woman who heard this, and in our story today, she is euphemistically referred to as a sinner, which basically meant that she was a prostitute. Now in Jesus' day, the teachings regarding forgiveness were such that there were certain sins that were unforgivable. You see, in order to be forgiven, one must confess one's wrong, and then one must demonstrate right behavior in the same area where they had misbehaved. And thirdly, one must make restitution. And if one could do all three things, then one would be forgiven. But if you are a prostitute, how do you make restitution for the sin? There's no way to do that. Ergo, it was deemed that prostitution was an unpardonable sin, and such a woman was forever lost. And of course, there were even some who argued wh whether or not a woman could be saved and whether or not a woman had a soul. Um, I would not like to live in their household if I preached that, but still, that's what they preached. But this woman in particular, who was a prostitute, heard the message from Jesus and heard that there was hope for her that God loved her, that God would forgive her sins. And it just thrilled her. She longed to make some expression of love to the one who had sent this message to her. She longed to demonstrate her love for Jesus, the one who had given her hope, the one who treated her as a somebody rather than a something, being a big difference between the two, is there not? Now, there was another who had heard that message who should have been warmed by it because he had actually had his life saved by Jesus. His name is Simon. And in another telling of the same story, he is called Simon the leper. But he is no longer referred to as a leper. He is in now just Simon. And the reason that could be is that Jesus had healed him. Leprosy was an incurable disease at the time. And the only way one could survive it would be through the healing that Jesus provided. And he had survived and was no longer a leper. And so he invited Jesus to his home. We find this in Luke's Gospel, the seventh chapter, 
starting with verse 36. Luke's Gospel, the seventh chapter, starting with verse 36. And it says, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, you might think that, and again, as we go further, we find that this man is named Simon, and in another telling of the gospel story, he is previously referred to as Simon the leper. So one would assume that Jesus had been invited here because he had just saved the man's life. He had given his life back. Not only had he restored his health, but he'd restored him to polite society, restored him to his family, restored him to his work. He could now go to the temple. He could now worship. He could now pray. He could do all those things. Which The healing was more than just physical. He had restored the man's life to him. It was all given back to him. It had been taken away, and he had to, to live apart from his family and cry out unclean, unclean, until Jesus healed him. And now he could once again resume his normal life. He had restored all things to him, all things. And so one would think that he was inviting Jesus to his home in order to honor him. Now, when one was invited to a home in those days for a meal, there were certain things that were absolutely essential, certain things that were required and expected from your host. If you walked into the house, they would provide, first of all, a kiss, usually from the host. A kiss would be given to you on the cheek normally to welcome you into the home. Water and a towel would be provided so that you might wash. Not just your feet, but your hands as well, as cer certainly before a meal. In fact, the Pharisees taught that a man with unwashed hands was unfit to even say the blessing, much less to partake of the meal. So water and a towel. And oil would be provided as well. Those three things. In fact, if those were withheld, it was a great insult. And this is a society, was then and is still today, where shame avoidance is huge. You had to save face. You have to present a certain face to society, and if you lose face, it is, it is the worst thing that could happen to you because your standing in the community is huge. One would do anything to avoid losing face, and if one is insulted, then one loses face, and that is just a horrible thing. That type of shame is something that you would avoid at all costs in this society. And so those things would be provided, but if they were withheld, that is to publicly humiliate and shame your guest. Those things were withheld from Jesus. Apparently, they were provided to the other guests because they were not shamed. They did not angrily walk off, uh, walk away from the dinner table, uh, shaking their, the dust from their clothes and, and pronouncing curses, which most would have done. No one did that. So it appears that Jesus was singled out. He is the only one who was publicly humiliated and shamed. It is difficult for us to understand the full force of this in our society. But this was a huge deal. It was the uppities putting the little guy in his place. This is the young prophet who has announced himself to be a prophet. We're going we're gonna to test him to see if indeed he is a prophet. And then we're going to set his doctrine straight. It's basically what's going on here. That message is being sent. Can you imagine the arrogance of this? The audacity. Of this man whose life has been restored, his life has been saved, and now he's going to test Jesus to see if he's a prophet, the man who just killed him. And he's going to set his doctrine straight, the man who just saved his life. And in order to do so, he begins by publicly humiliating this man, by withholding from him those three things, the water and towel, the kiss, the oil. Now, the, the Bible says here in that first verse, and it says, he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And the original language makes it, implies that basically Jesus saw the insult that was paid to him 
saw that he was singled out and seated himself. Now, that was n- never happened. Basically, when it was time for you to be seated, the host would seat starting with the eldest and working his way down to the youngest. Jesus, in a young man in his early 30s, was obviously not the eldest person in attendance. And yet, when he saw the insult paid to him, he said, all right, social niceties are off. I understand why I'm here now. And since we're throwing social customs to the, to the wind, I'll find my own seat. Thank you very much. It was a message sent back, I get it, game on. <laughs> I understand why I'm here now. You've, you've publicly humiliated me. You've shamed me in public. I'll find my own seat. Thank you very much. And so that's what he said. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. We spoke of her earlier. And when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought a alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her, her, with her tears, kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now, in another telling of the story, we find out that this cost, what, 200 denarii? 200 days wages. By the way, where would she get the money for that? She, she was a working girl. <laughs> she worked for it. She only had one source of income. She took the money from that trade, baptized it, and offered it to Jesus, and Jesus received it. That, that's another story there. There's another sermon in that. Ill-gotten gain, she says, is yours, Jesus, and he received it. He accepted it. Not only did he accept it, but he lauded her, and we tell the story yet today about the gift given to Jesus with money earned from her trade. That's an incredible thing right in in itself. Again, I could go on, but I won't. Here she she is in this house. She realizes Jesus is coming there, so she gains entry. She was not welcome. She was not invited. No one wanted her there, but she slipped in. The other servants were running around and taking care of things. She saw the insult paid to Jesus. She saw his humiliation. This is the man who treated her as a somebody. This is the man who had told her that God loved her, a sinner, and God forgave her as a sinner, that there was hope for her. And when she saw that he was publicly humiliated and publicly shamed, it broke her heart. I believe her tears were not just about the joy of salvation. It was she entered into the shame of her master. She entered into his humiliation with him. She suffered with him. She wept for his shame. And then she said, I will do my best to reverse the insult paid you. They will give you no kiss. I will kiss your feet. The only thing available to her since he was reclining at table to to kiss his, his face would have been unthinkable. She would have to crawl over him, and this was unseemly enough as it was. They will give you no towel or water for your feet. I have tears. They will give me no water if I ask, but I have tears, and I will use those to cleanse your feet. They will give me no towel. I will let down my hair. A a woman's hair was never revealed in public. Pharisees taught that if indeed a woman revealed her hair in public, uh, her husband was honor-bound to divorce her on the spot and to give her no financial settlement. The first time a man saw his wife's hair was on their wedding night. 
And he was the only one who saw that hair. It was thought that a woman's hair was so alluring, so sultry, as to cause a man to think sinful thoughts. And her voice was so sultry as to not, she should not speak in public because, again, it would cause a man to think sinful, sinful thoughts. That may be true of some women's voices. Few men's voices. <laughs> but a woman was not to speak in public. And certainly not to touch a man. She broke all of these norms. Basically, she humiliated herself. You will give him no oil. I have precious ointment. And I will anoint him with that. She reversed the three areas of shame heaped out against Jesus. She entered into his suffering with him and did her best to reverse the shame heaped upon her Lord. No kiss, I will provide it. No water, no towel, I will provide it with my tears and my hair, shaming myself publicly. No oil, I have precious perfume. She attempted to reverse the shame heaped on him by the host. His plan's coming undone. Simon is, is uh, put off his game a bit here. Verse 39, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, we see now why he's there. He's there to test him. He would know who and what sort of this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. We also know from background material more about this story as well, don't we? We know more about it from the writings of Ellen White and elsewhere. We won't go there today. Instead, we know that this man is testing Jesus. He's testing Jesus, and now he's convinced this man is not a prophet. He's healed me. He's saved my life. He's not a prophet. He's not a prophet, or else he would know that this is a sinner. He would recognize this. Rabbis were schooled to never speak to a woman in public. Never speak to a woman. And Jesus answered him. Answered him? Had Simon spoken? He's answering his thoughts, is he not? Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. We miss the force of this. This is a Jewish idiom. Basically what he said is, you don't want to hear what I got to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. And Simon, in essence, said, bring it on. <laughs> I don't know how it could go much worse than it has today. Bring it on. You don't want to hear this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Bring it on. That's basically what's going on here. This is kind of this is a bit of a confrontation. Simon knows it. He started it. Jesus knows it. He's given it back. And he's standing his ground. Then he begins to tell a story. Now, we think of stories sometimes as his sermon illustrations. We may think of the story as, um, as an interesting and entertaining thing, but that's not the case. Jesus was a Jewish theologian. And when a theologian would share his theology, he told stories. The theology was the story. The story was the theology. The parable was the theology. Today, a theologian might stand up and state a premise, give supporting evidence, do background and word studies uh, on, on the passages, and then uh, come back with a conclusion and give you his, his theological statement or her theological statement. Not so in Jesus' day. When, when the teacher began to tell a story, you understood this is his theology. 
Jesus is here giving a theological statement. I'm here so that you can straighten out my theology. Let me give you my theology, and I will give it to you now. He starts to tell a story, and he tells a story about a moneylender and two debtors. Now, the stories of the moneylender were told often by the teachers of the day, and God is always the moneylender, and sinners are the debtors. But here Jesus does something different with the story. We see at first he starts off with God being the moneylender, but by the end of the story, Jesus has made a subtle shift revealing to you and to Simon that he himself, Jesus, is the moneylender. He's not just a prophet. He is God. And that implication comes through at the end of the story. But he also implies that not only is this woman a sinner, a debtor to, to God, and therefore to himself, to Jesus, but also Simon is a debtor as well. Watch this. He says, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were both unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Neither one could pay. One owed a great debt, the other a smaller debt. But neither was able to repay. He forgave both debts completely, canceled them, marked them as gone. They don't exist anymore. Which one will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You understand now he's going to the areas of insult and shame. He's not leaving this alone. He, you heaped shame upon me. You gave me no water. But she has entered into my humiliation with me and done her best to reverse it. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. Again, the second point of insult and humiliation. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. The third point. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, she's the 500 denarii debtor, no doubt, they are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Who is he implying there? Simon. All right, let's just assume, he says, for a moment that you're correct, that you are the smaller debtor, but you are a debtor and you cannot repay. I have healed you, I saved your life, and I restored your life completely. This woman I have forgiven. Her life has not been restored. She's still a woman of shame, a woman of scorn, a woman of public humiliation. Her life has not been restored, but yet she loves me. Apparently, to be forgiven is a greater gift than to be healed. Think about that. I've thought about that recently a lot. To be forgiven is the greater gift. But Simon had not been forgiven. Why? Hadn't asked, and he didn't ask because he didn't think he needed it. He figured if he owed anything, it was a trifling amount that could be easily handled. But Jesus is saying, you owe that debt not just to the Father, but to me, and you cannot pay it. Had you asked, you too would be forgiven. But who loves the most? The one who has been forgiven most. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Now, 
Again, the force of this is not immediately recognized, but he is basically there directly forgiving her sin, putting himself in the position of the moneylender. He is the moneylender. He is God. For any man to say, your sins are forgiven, is blasphemy because it's assuming the rights and privileges of responsibilities that belong only to God. I don't have the right to say that. I have the right to tell you that he has promised that if you confess, he is faithful and just to forgive. I can give you that by the word of God, can I not? But I cannot say, I forgive your sins. I don't have the authority to do that. That would be blasphemy. Jesus said, I forgive your sins. That is the direct implication. And those at the dinner got it. Those who were reclining at the table, verse 49, with him, began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? They got the force of the statement. Jesus has forgiven this woman's sins. Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, for by grace are we saved through faith, not of works, lest any should boast. The apostle Paul echoes, go in peace. Peace here is reminiscent of the Hebrew shalom, which is more than just an absence of strife, more than just an absence of war. It is all that is necessary for your best good, for your greatest fulfillment. Have everything that God wants you to have. Have it all. Have it out of the land. Have all that God has envisioned that you should have. Go with plenty. Go in peace. Amen? Jesus here told a story of two debtors. You know what I think, though? I think what he was also implying is that, in essence, there are no 50 denarii debtors. We're all in the same boat. <laughs> Our debt is equal. This level ground at the foot of the cross, rather. <laughs> level ground. And your debt is no less, no greater than anyone else's. That, the one thing I do know about you even here in the Carolinas, is that you were debtors. Just as am I. Same way in Texas. <laughs> I've traveled the world, and you know what? Everybody is. We're all in the same boat. We're all debtors. And our debt is greater than any of us can ever repay. But one has offered to forgive our debts if we will but receive it, and that is Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the one who was foreshadowed in all the sanctuary services. He is the Lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the world. He is the one whose sacrifice takes away your sin. He is the one who himself is the embodiment of truth. He is the truth, the way, the light, you, the open door, you name it. Those wonderful I am statements in John. He is all of those things and more. He is your means of salvation. And he is the one for whom we exist. Every teaching, every prophetic utterance, every evangelistic sermon, every service of the church is about Jesus Christ the righteous. His forgiveness of sinners, his reconciliation of the world to himself. That's what it's about. And the news is that our God is a God who loves sinners. You see the placards on the news. God hates gays. Seriously? You think he does? I don't. God loves gays. He loves transsexuals. I live in Dallas, Texas, in the second largest community of homosexuals and lesbians in the United States. Number one is San Francisco, but Dallas is number two. We're trying harder. 
my neighbors on either side are homosexual men. And until just recently, when they moved, my neighbors up above me in my condo building were lesbians. Now it's an immigrant couple from China who have been converted to Christianity since they got to the United States, and they're the only other couple in the building that goes to church. <laughs> That's where I live. God loves sinners. He loves the people in my building. He loves the people in your community. He loves the pimps and the prostitutes. He loves the drug deal dealers and the drug addicts. He loves the pedophiles and the murderers. God loves them all. Abusive men and women, God loves them. All of us are great debtors, and yet his grace is sufficient. I used to work as a hospital chaplain, and I uh, got to work one day, and I looked on my schedule, and I had two appointments other than my regular room-to-room -room visitation, two appointments that morning, that, that day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. The one in the morning was with a young lady who I later learned was 28 years of age. I did not know her. The one in the afternoon was across the street at the nursing home. There was a woman who was 78 years of age who I knew was dying of cancer who wanted me to come see her. I assumed I knew what that visit was about. I didn't know about the 28-year-old. She came into my office, though, that morning, and she was beautiful, and she was obviously quite nervous and fidgety, and she made small talk for a time, and then finally she got down to business. And here's what she said. Chaplain, I'm 28 years of age. I've been married and divorced three times. My children do not live with me. They live with their fathers. And I'm not allowed to see them. All three divorces were my fault. I've had numerous extramarital affairs intentionally. I've broken up, I can't tell you how many homes. My family won't speak to me. I'm alone in the world. Tell me, chaplain, is there any hope for someone like me? That afternoon, I went across the street, sat down at the bedside of the 78-year-old woman who was dying of cancer, and she did not waste time with pleasantries or small talk. She got right to the business. She said, I've traveled the world over and I've made a lot of money, but during the course of that I was married and divorced three times and all three divorces were my fault. I've had numerous extramarital affairs. I cannot tell you how many marriages I have broken up. My children and grandchildren will not speak to me. I have no contact with them. I have one niece who from time to time will come by and visit me. I'm alone in the world and I'm dying. Tell me, chaplain, is there any hope for someone like me? Fifty years separating these women in age, but nothing. <laughs> Story had not changed from generation to generation. And the question remained the same. Just how good is God? Is he big enough? Is he good enough to cancel my debt? My answer to both women was the same. God's grace is greater than your sin because God loves sinners. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, today we come to you because each one of us is a debtor. The one thing I know about the people in Carolina, the Carolinas, is that they are the same as me. They are debtors. 
And so today, Lord, we come to you as great debtors asking that you would indeed cancel our debt. We don't deserve that. That's why we need grace, which you have freely offered. So today, Lord, we accept your gracious gift, payment for our sin, cancellation of our debt, and we give you glory. Now, Lord, you've told us that when our debt has been forgiven, that we have a responsibility, that we are to be beggars telling other beggars where bread might be found, that we would be those who are no longer debtors telling others who are in debt where forgiveness and cancellation of debt might be found. Lord, give us the ability to do just that. Give it, put it in our heart to do that. Every member, every leader, every church, until the whole world knows that we have a God who forgives sins. Thank you, Lord. We give you glory. For we pray it in the name of Jesus, our gracious Savior. Amen.